like to invite you to join me in prayer ask the Lord would bless the preaching of the word. Well, Father in heaven, we thank you for your word, Lord, and thank you for um, the promises that you have given about your word, Lord, that your sheep hear your voice. Lord, also that it will not return void. Lord, I pray that it would be a, a pleasing aroma to you and also to those who are being saved. Lord, I pray that you would bless the ministry of your word right now. And we pray that your spirit would work this in us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you got your Bibles, I'd like to invite you to turn to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6, we're going to begin at verse 7. Before we get there and while you're finding it, I, I'd like to ask, do you believe that Jesus Christ saves sinners? And the next question is, are you sure, if it's true that you do believe that Jesus Christ saves sinners, are you sure that you are one of them and will forever be one of them? We began the sermon series talking about the Spirit's work of assurance and that this work belongs to those who have been redeemed by the blood of Jesus. His work to assure his people. It's, it's not merely a work where he convinces us that Jesus died for sinners, but that Jesus died for me. It's not a work where he whispers in our ears, but one that he transforms our hearts to hear the words of the gospel and believe them and to love them. We agree with them and we treasure them. To believe that we, being born in sin, are children of wrath, and we can expect only to receive the wrath of God in hell as the just wages of our sin against God. But that God, in his great love and his mercy, he sent his son to be born of a woman, born under the law, and that he might keep the law of God on our behalf satisfying the law's demands, that he, Jesus Christ, then bore our sins on himself on the cross, carrying them, and while carrying them, he received the just punishment from God that we deserved, that he died as a payment for our sin, but was raised to life three days later. And by the resurrection, God was declaring that he accepted Christ's sacrifice as a payment for the sin of others, rather than being a death and punishment that he deserved. His death and resurrection does not merely spare his people from judgment. It secures for them a new and eternal life, a new life, not as God's enemies, but as his dearly loved children who love him because he first loved them. Children who are therefore then empowered by the Holy Spirit to love the God that they once hated and to love the commands of God that they once hated and now love them as the wise and loving commands of a good father who desires good for them. That is the Spirit's work in us. To hear the word of God now as the words of our Father. His commands and his promises and his warnings and comforts and to respond to all of these as though they come from our perfect Father because they do. And we also saw from Romans 8 that the Spirit's work to assure us of our adoption. It's also seen in our prayers that we can call now to God as our affectionate Father, trusting that the merits of Christ will be applied to our prayers. And that God will respond to us, not based on how good we've been as children, but based on the sonly obedience of Jesus that now counts for us. So we've seen how these truths shape the church, which God himself has established and designed. 
Today, we're going to conclude our series on the ordinary beauty of the church's assurance by looking at leadership in the church or officers or office bearers of the church. As we've been able to see all along, all the commands of God related to the church work for and not against, and not even in addition to, his work to shape us into a group of people who can delight in the truth that we have become, by the work of Christ, the household of God himself. A family that hears the words of God together, is shaped by them, and who calls out to him together with confidence that Christ has earned us an attentive, loving wise and all-powerful ear. But I'd like to begin this sermon by turning to a, an unlikely passage for this particular topic. I want to turn to the Lord's Prayer. I believe, though, it's going to show the point which is being made through the Lord's design for leadership in the church. Here, Jesus is describing the kind of relationship which Christ purchased for us as individuals and also as a church, as a household of faith. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Matthew 6, verse 7. Jesus said, and when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them. For your father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this. Our father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. I wonder if you can see how this shows you, it's, it's kind of like a summary of the relationship with Jesus purchased for us on the cross. This is how I want you to see a relationship with me now, says the Lord. This is what I want to characterize life in the household that I am the father of. I supply forgiveness. I supply holiness. And I also care for your earthly needs. So it should come as no surprise that when God establishes leadership in the church, he does it in such a way that establishes and insists on his own priorities for the household where his assurance is known. That's going to bring us to our first point, which is this. Through leadership God establishes, God sets the church's program. There's a recent headline that said, that was related to the fact that Joe Biden, the presumed president-elect of the United States, no political point being made there, that he has elected, he is, sorry, he has appointed John Kerry as his special presidential envoy for climate. CNN said that this underscores his commitment to tackling the global crisis and offering a symbolic rebuke to President Donald Trump's lack of leadership on the issue. Kerry, who was President Barack Obama's Secretary of State, will be a cabinet-level official in Biden's administration and will sit on the National Security Council. We don't need to make a comment on whether we agree with this, but what we can all agree with is that no one thinks this doesn't matter. 
making this a cabinet position, a National Security Council position, elevates this. And it tells you the priority and the seriousness that Joe Biden is willing to assign to what he would call the, the climate crisis. It establishes his priorities. And we're gonna see whether you agree with that or not, not the point, but establishing that as a cabinet position reflects his heart on the matter. We're gonna see this as we look to 1 Timothy chapter three as well. The Lord is establishing officers, offices in the church. Let's turn to 1 Timothy chapter three. We're gonna read starting at verse one. 1 Timothy chapter three. Verse one, the same trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an officer must be, an overseer, sorry, must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. Deacons, likewise, must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonesty. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. And let them also be tested first. Then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives likewise must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. I hope to come to you soon. This is Paul writing to Timothy. I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. That's the scripture. So if we start at the ending, verses 14 and 15, we can see that these instructions are to shape the church, that it would be a pillar and buttress of the truth, a place where the truth is known and delighted in. The truth, verse 16, that was what was accomplished by the life and death and resurrection of Christ Jesus, the eternal son of God. And so the question is, what kind of a family did his cross create, right? The life of Christ is his uh, incarnation, his life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension into heaven. What did that accomplish? What kind of a family, what kind of a household did that create? So then we can back up and see the leadership, the offices, which God establishes that the church be shaped as his household. So I'm going to start um, with 
elders, and this is our second point, elders. Our Heavenly Father, this is our point, our Heavenly Father forgives and delivers us from evil. Our Heavenly Father forgives and delivers us from evil. So we first see that the church is to be led by elders, and we see this is in, in verses 1 through 7. Elders are also called overseers, bishops, pastors, shepherds. They're all the same word to describe the same role. The elders are responsible not only for the ministry of the word, but for the whole life of the church. They are called overseers. But they're also specifically called ministers of the word. So we're going to see that the elders' primary responsibility in the form of a charge, a command, his marching orders, we're going to see this in Paul's letter, his second letter to Timothy, the young church planting pastor of the church in Ephesus. And so you can see this in 2 Timothy chapter 4. He says, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions, and will turn away from listening to the truth, and will wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. So we see that Timothy is an overseer, he's an elder. He's to preach and teach, to put the word of God in front of the people of God, over, over to love them, and to help them love it, and to help them understand it, to lift up the glory of the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit, and as Jordan so faithfully showed us in his sermon on preaching, it's going to shape the church as people love it and are transformed by it. Or false converts cannot bear it for very long, and they will eventually treat it as repulsive. We're going to see this again in 1 Peter 5. 1 Peter 5, 1 to 5, Peter talking. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder, and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So I, I hope you can see from those passages that pastors and elders are, are the same group of men, and that their role is oversight. So you see this, I wonder if you could see this, those who take responsibility for teaching and preaching are also the ones who take responsibility for the church itself. So the ministry of the word is the ministry that oversees the church. That way, the word of God rules the church. Put it this way. You can think of it in terms of our, of our own government. If the ministry of defense was the actual office that ran the whole country, we could say that we had a military country, couldn't we? Now, if we have the ministry of health running the whole country, it would look much different 
than if the Ministry of Agriculture or the Ministry of Infrastructure ran the country. The reality is that if any one government department like that ran the country, we'd have a big problem. We see even here now in times of crisis, there's all kinds of, of calling the government to take one particular ministry of the government and make it the one that is in charge of all the others. You can't afford to do that. But we see this in the church. It's no accident that the ministry of the word in the church is also the ministry of overseers. So it's God's demand that the word of Christ not only dwell richly in us, but that it would also lead and shepherd the whole church. The gospel is not just one of the things the church does. It's not one of its departments. It is the church. Martin Luther was famous for saying that the, the, the church is a creature of the word. John Calvin said that the, the scepter with which King Jesus rules the church is the word of God. And so the God, and God has shaped and formed the church, which is a pillar and buttress of the truth. And he has given a place of permanent importance for the word of God by establishing the office of elder. These men who get their marching orders, they're charged from the Lord. And the Lord holds them responsible to make sure that the church loves and treasures and trusts and obeys his word. See to it. Lay down your lives to make sure that she does. Put yourselves in between her and any wicked men who would try to turn her eyes off of my son. I expect you, to, you men to die before you let that happen. I expect men to lose their jobs and reputations and houses and limbs before they would let that happen. It's as if Jesus says that if I see a church which has gone away from my word, and I also don't see your bodies broken in an attempt to stop it, you're not worthy of the office of elder. After his resurrection from the dead, Jesus appeared many times over the course of 40 days to hundreds and hundreds of people. And one of those times is recorded for us in John 21. After betraying Jesus three times, Jesus comes to, to Peter and restores him. And we see in this restoration of Peter that it included giving him the honor of dying for the church as an elder, feeding her with the rich food of God's word. Now, he wouldn't die for the church in the same way that Jesus did. Jesus atoned for the sin of the church. Peter certainly did not. He didn't defeat death for her. But Peter would spend his life preaching the gospel, fighting heretics, and disobeying the commands of tyrant leaders, insisting that he stop preaching the gospel. And he would stop only when his life was finally taken from him. Peter would be put to death, history tells us, by being crucified upside down. In fact, John, the Apostle John, was the only one of the 12 disciples, apostles, who was not certainly martyred. However, John, he did also suffer much for the gospel, throwing himself between the sheep of Christ in the attacks of false shepherds. And wolves in sheep's clothing and wolves in wolves' clothing. John was exiled and sentenced to be imprisoned on the land, on the island of Patmos. Paul as well 
the 13th apostle added late to symbolize the lateness of the Gentiles being included in the household of God. Remember that his charge, he was knocked off his ride uh, by Jesus. He was blinded and he was only to be healed of his blindness by going to a man named Ananias. The Lord talks to Ananias and tells him he's going to heal Saul or Paul, and Ananias argues with him. We see this in Acts chapter 9. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. All apostles are elders, but not all elders are apostles. An apostle is a kind of elder. In fact, there are no more apostles since their job was to deliver the word of God, essentially to write the New Testament or see to it that it was written. And an elder's job is to not come up with new words from the Lord or hear new words from the Lord, but to take that word once and for all delivered to the church by the apostles and then to shepherd the church with it at the peril of their lives. To not only preach and teach the word, but to insist that the church treasure the word of Christ. First Timothy chapter 4. Verse 6, if you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourselves, yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, and it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserves full acceptance. For to this end we toil and strive, because we have our hope set on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. Listen to how he ends this. Command and teach these things. So an elder's responsibility is to insist on these things. Setting an example. Not commanding anything that the word of God doesn't command, and not commanding anything that we ourselves wouldn't be willing to do. We have the responsibility to make sure that the church hears and knows and treasures and believes and proclaims the word of Christ. And so God elevated the word of God in the church by establishing the office of elders and then for providing men for that office who are God's servants, bond servants, slaves, stewards for God's glory, and also for the good of his dearly beloved church. But if we're going in Timothy, in 1 Timothy chapter 3, we see that there's a second office that's established. That brings us to our third point, and that's this, deacons. Colon, our heavenly Father gives us our daily bread. We see these two priorities that we even saw in the Lord's prayer. We see them coming through in his establishment of the ministry, priorities, and leadership of the church. He gives us the office of deacon. And so there are only two offices, elder and deacon. And so through these, he has established his priority. He has set the agenda of the church. He has told her how to be a pillar and buttress of the truth. 
how the church is to be a true experience of what it means to belong to the household of God. So we can see the office of deacon here in this passage. And the greatest difference between the qualifications of office of elder and deacon is the ability to teach, but otherwise the qualifications are quite similar. So what are deacons and what do they do? We have to turn to Acts chapter 6, and that's going to help us answer that question. So if you have your Bible, turn to Acts chapter 6. Acts chapter 6, and we're going to begin at verse 1. Acts chapter 6, verse 1. Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists, or the, the Greeks, arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Procurus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed, and they laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. This is the word of God. So the elders, who were also apostles in this case, elders who wrote the New Testament, essentially, they were struck with the controversy that the church was not caring well enough for all its widows. The issue doesn't seem to be that there wasn't enough money or food or manpower to do it, but that it was a matter of making decisions as to who should get support from the church. The apostles, rather than the, 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 the elders deciding that, the elders lead the church in calling seven men who will serve in this way. Now, there were many more than seven people who helped the poor widows in the church. In fact, it seems that everyone was constantly involved in sharing and caring. You'll remember that just a couple of chapters earlier, the church was said, we can read in Acts chapter 4. Look at verse 32. Now, the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. The question is, who insists that this happens? Who sees to it that this is done? Who makes sure that it is done fairly? Who makes sure that no one slips through the cracks? Who makes sure that sin doesn't get in the way of this, such as, in this case, the sin of racism? On one level, you could say, whose responsibility? You could say the elders. And that would actually be true, because they were the ones who made sure that the deacons were called and given their roles. They were the ones who were responsible to teach the church about the church's responsibility to care for its widows and orphans. The elders also oversee and have authority over the deacons. They're actually called to teach and protect the whole church, including the deacons. So on one level, you could say it's the elders' responsibility that the, that the needy in the church were cared for. On another level, you could say that it was the members who were responsible to care for the needy, because they're responsible to follow the sound teaching of the elders from the word of God and also responsibility generous and to care about those things which the Lord cares about. 
They're responsible to treat believers as if they were their own family because Christ's gospel has made them one. But here we see God's heart of the matter. He could have left it at that. But he actually elevates the care of the needy, the widows in the church, by assigning the only other office, the only other position of leadership available in the church in this sense. If you want to see how important the word of God is to the church, look at the office of elder and God's commands for men to give their lives to make sure the church is well-fed with the word. And if you also then want to see the importance, how important the church's needy are to the Lord, look at the office of deacon. The very next chapter, we're going to see that Stephen, one of the first seven deacons, is killed for his faith. It's also likely because his position of leadership made him target of persecutors. There's a few things that we, can, we need to say about deaconing, or deacons, or the diaconate. First thing is that the role is not as clear as we'd like it to be. The role is not as clear as we'd like it to be. Because the word literally means servant in Greek. And that word is used quite a bit in the New Testament. Quite a bit. Second, though, what is not unclear is the goal of the deacon work that we see in Scripture. By establishing the diaconate, or the deacon ministry, you could say, or the mercy ministry, the Lord is establishing the priority of care for the needy without diminishing or taking away from the priority of the word of God and prayer. The third thing we can see is that there are people who can certainly be called deacons. Men who take responsibility to make sure that the church honors the Lord in the church's care for the needy. But what is not clear is whether there are others who also might be called deacons, even though they don't have authority given to them. We might say little d deacons. Jordan did a wonderful job showing that we already see this kind of distinction when we talk about preaching. You'll recall that he talked about little p preaching and big p preaching. We could also see with the word apostles. Apostles literally just means sent one or a representative in that sense. And so in that case, we're all sent by the Lord. But that doesn't mean we're all apostles. We know what the office of an apostle is. There's a difference. And so this is kind of the question here. Is there others who can rightly be called deacons or being part of the deacon ministry? And so we're going to see in Acts chapter 9. There's a woman named Tabitha or Dorcas. And she's said to have been known for caring for the poor, dedicating herself to the care of the poor, dedicated to the mercy ministry or the deacon work of the church. So she's definitely involved in the mercy ministry of the church. We're also going to see in 1 Timothy 5, there's rules given to the church about which widows should actually receive from the church's mercy ministry. These worthy widows are actually supported, and they actually have to have a reputation for serving in the ministry, the mercy ministry of the church, for caring for the church's need. We're also going to see in Romans chapter 16, verse 
One, Paul's going to refer to a woman whose name is Phoebe, and she's called a servant of the church. And the word servant is the same word which is used many places in the New Testament. And it's also used to, it's the name of the office of deacon. Does that mean that she's rightly called a deacon? Well, Phoebe certainly was involved in the care of the needs of the saints. Paul himself received care from her. So, we see that there are those who have been given this authority under the authority of the elders to make sure that the poor and the needs of the church are, are met. We also see that there's people who are serving with them, part of that ministry. So you may have noticed in our 1 Timothy 3 passage, in verse 11, there's a, a reference to the wives of elders and deacons. Likewise, their wives. That's verse 11. The word wives here is actually a Greek word, obviously, because the letter was written in Greek. But it can mean either wives or women. It just depends on the context. So you have to, the rest of the paragraph is going to have to tell you that. And so there's good arguments for either interpretation. And so there's some who say that it's talking about the women who help the deacons. So... They're not deacons in that leadership pers uh, perspective, but they're giving themselves to the ministry, the deacon ministry. They've dedicated themselves to this. So women like Dorcas or Phoebe or the godly widows that we see in 1 Timothy 5 who are receiving deacon care, but also giving it. Some also might think another interpretation is that it's talking about the wives of elders and deacons. Some think, though, that it can properly be talking about deaconesses. Some think that these women, these are women who dedicate their time to helping the deacons, and they can be called deaconesses. In any case, godly brothers and sisters throughout church history have disagreed on what to call those people who help the deacons. They agree that there are deacons, and there's also people who help the deacons. What you call them? is not as important. But what is clear is the priority that God places on the ministry of the word and mercy ministry, the diaconate. By establishing the diaconate and calling people to dedicate themselves to that ministry. Some to deacon leadership and some to not deacon leadership, but, but being involved and dedicating themselves to the deacon work. So God has established only two offices for the church, elders and deacons. And by doing this, he insists that his vision for the church is followed. Brings us to our fourth point. The assurance of being God's forgiven and supplied child. The assurance of being God's forgiven and supplied child. Brothers and sisters, we began this series by talking about the shape of the church and the things which the church spends its time and efforts doing. We notice that your goals and what you think about salvation is going to shape your activities and how you spend your time and what you think the church is. We also recognize that a pandemic ran through the evangelical church in the last 50 years 
or so. And this pandemic can be called the seeker sensitive or church growth or attractional model church. It was a virus that infected even our church, myself included. It was a model of church which, which ignored some of God's purposes for the church and added other purposes. Ignored the purpose for the church to be the household of God. And he, instead, it, it tended to treat the church like a series of events or concerts to impress and attract people using things that enemies of God love. I want you to imagine that you work for a king. You're part of a group of servants of a king. And he left you in charge of his castle, his household. Before he left, he established two ministries, two offices, two types of leadership positions. One was to feed the children, and the other one was to protect the castle from dragons. Now, if the king comes back and finds dragons in the middle of breaking down the walls and the kids not quite fed, it wouldn't automatically mean that he would be disappointed with the servants. If they had spent all of their resources and all of their time feeding the kids and fighting dragons, but just ran out of resources and time, they would have their master's kind sympathy. However, if he came back to find dragons halfway into the walls and the kids half fed, while you were in the middle of crowning someone the Earl of Waterslides, he'd be pretty furious. So the question is, what does God insist that the church do in order to treasure and glory and delight in the gift of reconciliation with him? What offices has he put in place to insist that the church continually reflect only his vision and leadership and strat plan and heart for his blood-bought family? The ministry of the word and prayer and the ministry of mercy. Now, is the church free to do other things? Well, Christians are free to do other things. That's absolutely true. Christians must. Christians can be cobblers. They can make shoes and candles and streets and wheels. But should a church? Perhaps, perhaps not. This is fairly clear that for churches who believe that they can be doing other things, they would first need to be able to make the case that they were doing an honorable, exceptional job with those other two ministries discipling people with the word of God, praying with them, teaching them to pray, praying for them, training up elders and pastors and missionaries, caring for their own needy and the needy among the disciples of their missionaries. So brothers and sisters, our Redeemer has been very gracious to us over the years. He's more, for, more faithful by far to us than we are to him. And this is an area which the elders would like to lead our church in repentance over. We have, in the past and even now, we have honored the Lord in how we have cared for his needy people. And so the Lord deserves glory for that. 
But not only does the Lord deserve glory for that, those in the church who gave themselves to the care of the needy also deserve a godly honor for that. And I personally want to thank those of you who have spent much time and resources to care for those in the church who have extra needs. You've glorified the Lord greatly, and it is a pleasing aroma to him. At the same time, we have not placed this ministry at the level that the scripture places it. And we need to repent of that. It's our intention to lead the church by establishing a more prominent mercy ministry in the church, complete with men who will hold the office of deacon, and so insist and ensure that the church receives the kind of mercy ministry that reflects the Father's care for his children. You've noticed that our new budget places this not outside, but inside the church's ministry operations. This is now part of what we do. Not an additional thing that we do. And so this is going to include carefully and wisely looking after the needs in our church family, as well as the needs of the people that are missionaries, our discipling, as our ministry extends beyond our church membership, and we're grateful for that. We are grateful for the Lord's patience with us and also his mercy in revealing this to us and leading us in repentance from it. And it will be our delight to glorify him even more. And in so doing, we will get a better grasp of the sweetness of being adopted into the family which God is the father of. Remember that salvation is not merely forgiveness, but it is being adopted into the household, the family of God. The church is the household of God. And being part of a church is supposed to be a comfort to you, a reminder of who God is to you in Christ. So does God see you as a person in a drop-in who gets good care from him? Or does he see you as a child in his family that receives fatherly care from him? So the church was shaped by the Lord in such a way that those with false assurance would have false assurance exposed. And those true believers with weak assurance would grow in their assurance that Christ has made them God's dearly beloved children. But also, the church is to give that hope content. It's one thing to know that you are God's child, but what does it mean? What are the benefits of being God's child? Why is that good? And to give us this kind of confidence that we could say, I'm confident that being God's child means that my sins are forgiven because of the cross and that I am washed clean and that he has given me a new heart that loves him and his kingdom. And he leads me away from temptation and that he, while still in this life, as my father, doesn't just care for my soul, but he also supplies all my daily creaturely needs out of his generous supply until he returns or until he calls me home. And he certainly will. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are grateful for who you reveal yourself to be. Lord, we are grateful that you have cared for our soul, that you have 
given us your son to die for our sins and rise from the dead, to, to make us new, to give us a new resurrection life, not as strangers of yours, not even as just forgiven enemies, but as sons and daughters of yours. And Lord, we live in a world where we are constantly faced with all kinds of needs. And we are grateful that you have not just secured a pardon for our sin, but Lord, now a relationship where the one who provides for our needs, cares for our needs, is also our Father. And Lord, I pray that you would shape our church with that kind of leadership and affection so that you would give, you would get the kind of glory you deserve for the kind of Father and Savior that you are. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.